You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Quick little warning up top. This story gets a little icky. It's nothing too bad. But if, say, you tried watching that HBO Chernobyl show and found you couldn't do it, then this might be an eensy bit rough. Also, if you haven't listened to our last episode, Seeing is Believing, you might want to catch up on that one before you start in on this. And that's it. Let's get going. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. I have a recurring daydream where I inexplicably discover an extra room behind the closet I'm recording in. It's my own personal office, and in my fantasies, it is glorious. There's a fine leather Regency armchair and ottoman for me to kick up on while I'm reading. There's a hundred-year-old pull-down map cabinet on the wall so I can stare purposelessly at the continental U.S. or Illinois circa 1908 and then do that thing where I let the map snap, roll up, and disappear the way I got in trouble for in elementary school. And center stage, there's the desk. An antique quarter-sawn oak draftsman's desk. Dark and woody and wonderful, with more than a dozen pull-out drawers for all my miscellaneous doodads and nonsense. In my dreams, it's perfect. And every last element can be found at Industrial Artifacts. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chalk-blocked with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar, searching for that fabulous kitchen table, or, sigh, building out your non-existent home office space, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order. Just enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. Check out the link in the episode notes or go to industrialartifacts.net today. And remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT, one word, to get 15% off your first order. One day, pull-down map. One day. A reporter once asked Wilhelm Röntgen what he thought when he first accidentally noticed x-rays lighting up a phosphorescent screen in his lab. I didn't think, he replied. I investigated. Ronkin was a scrupulous investigator. Before going public with his discovery, he subjected his x-rays to comprehensive testing and observation. The paper that heralded his breakthrough on a new kind of rays is an exemplar of scientific literature careful, well-buttressed, and perspicuous. Ronkin's research and writing was so assiduous and thorough that it took nearly a decade 
for anyone to figure out anything about x-rays that he hadn't already worked out in the first month. He is the model scientist, with as solid a legacy as anyone could ever ask for. Yet, he managed to overlook one thing. A very big, important thing. During that first bout of investigation, he held his hand for a while in front of his x-ray machine. And it burned, like a hideous, horrid sunburn. As you can probably guess, this was a radiation burn. Possibly the first radiation burn in history. But that isn't what Ronkin concluded. He assumed that the burn was the result of exposure to ozone, a byproduct of the x-ray machine. No big deal. Nikola Tesla, who just barely missed finding x-rays before Ronkin, concurred. As scientists the world over began playing with Ronkin's new machine, reports of burns were cropping up everywhere. In 1896, just two months after they were revealed, John Daniel and William Dudley hoped they could use x-rays to locate a bullet lodged in the head of a young patient. Dr. Dudley put his head about a half inch away from the x-ray machine, and Professor Daniel threw the switch and left it on for an hour. Two weeks later, all of Dudley's hair fell out. In August, Herbert D. Hawks brought his x-ray machine to a New York department store to show off his skeletal chewing jaw to tourists and onlookers for hours at a time. After a half day at the job, he had to stop because his hands had swollen and appeared to be sunburned. In two weeks, his hair fell off too, along with the skin on his hands and his fingernails. Tesla assured those who were worried about these injuries that there was no cause for concern. It was ozone, nothing more. Not everyone agreed with Ronkin and Tesla. Some believed the burns were instead electrical, or that they owed to faulty equipment, broken vacuum tubes, or unsterile laboratory conditions, where dust particles were being pushed via x-ray into the skin. Maybe some early x-ray technicians were inept, Maybe some patients were hypersensitive. Whatever the case, it was not the x-rays that were responsible. Radiation, the world believed, was perfectly safe. And it would take decades of injuries, cancers, and deaths to finally correct that belief. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, For That Healthy Glow. Water is life. That is the conclusion reached by every human society ever to walk the earth, from India to Egypt to Greece to China, the New World and the Old. And for good reason. It's true. But what is it that makes water so necessary and powerful? On that, there was a lack of consensus. Specifically, let's talk about hot springs, because that's where we'll eventually round our way back to the point. The medicinal benefits of sulfurous hot springs for relaxing muscles, soothing joints, and even treating skin conditions were discovered separately by civilizations all around the world. Indigenous American tribes, various Nordic tribes, the Japanese, the Greeks, the Etruscans, the Celts. The Romans expanded and institutionalized hot baths, transforming them into a widespread fact of social and medical life for nearly everyone under the empire. The Romans also divided these hot springs into different types with different attendant medical uses. 
According to the likes of our old pal Galen, sulfurous waters were good for soldiers who were sore and tired, while bromo-ionic ones could treat women suffering from sterility. With the decline of the Roman Empire came a decline in bathing in the West. But don't get me wrong, Europeans still cleaned themselves, maybe not as much as they could have, and they still used hot springs medicinally, but to a much lesser extent than during the Roman years, less universally, less socially. Medical bathing, or balneotherapy for the SAT word set, experienced a couple of spikes in Western Europe through the 14th and 15th century, but the widespread readoption of spa days for the sick and injured only reappeared with force in the early 19th century. When Vincennes Presnitz was a teenager in Austria, 1816, he was run over by a carriage. The wheels ran straight over his chest, breaking several ribs. He went to his local doctor who was, I think I can safely say, not very good at his job. He took a look at Vinz's chest and said, yeah, broken ribs, nothing to be done. Probably they'll just be broken forever. Vincennes was told that he would be crippled for the rest of his probably short life. He didn't accept that, though. He remembered that, as a boy, he'd watched an injured deer repeatedly bathing in a spring near his house. A few weeks later, the deer was right as rain, so Vincennes decided to give it a go. For the next year, he bathed in the spring, covered his chest in wet bandages, and drank copious amounts of water. And miraculously, or totally normally, his ribs healed. Like Galen and Hippocrates before him, Vincennes Presnitz had discovered the healing power of water and began treating injured farm animals and pets around his village of Grafenberg. Soon, people started showing up, asking to be healed. Vincennes built out his family home to hold his patients, and by 1822, he had a full business going, the first modern sanitarium and spa. Vincennes Presnitz and his healing spa were the talk of the town, then the country, then the continent, and finally, the world. His grounds grew over the 1830s and 40s, with his clientele regularly reaching the thousands, including princes, dukes, and one particularly important British asphalt contractor. In 1841, that British asphalt dealer, R.T. Claridge, wrote a book extolling Presnitz and his science of hydropathy. It was a bestseller. Its first printing sold out in no time. It reached its third edition in just three months. In the fifth edition, published just nine months out, Claridge remarks in a new foreword about the astonishing success and attention which had led, by that time, to the formation of new health spas and societies all around England. Between Pretznitz himself and his English-language disciple Claridge, hydropathy was on the move. By 1852, there were dozens of spas throughout England, hundreds throughout Europe, and a growing number in the U.S., culminating in the creme de la creme of them all, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, as overseen by John Harvey Kellogg, both of which we talked about at pretty good length a few episodes back in Snap, Crackle, Boom. Oh look, you might say, another episode where we spend 15 minutes meandering about on some tertiarily related nonsense before getting to the GD point. What's this all have to do with radiation? But this path is less primrosed than it seems. We're, we're almost there. From the beginning, doctors and scientists were antagonistic towards hydropathy. But to many patients, that was probably seen as a feature rather than a bug. As we've frequently discussed, the medical establishment of the 19th century was... awful. Just terrible. The treatments were painful and uncomfortable. The results were... well, there weren't many results. And doctors themselves were becoming increasingly ivory-towered and impersonal. 
going to the doctor was unpleasant, uncomfortable, and largely unhelpful. So, say your 1840s arthritis was acting up, and you've got two options. You can have Dr. Gustav von Neifenstein stick leeches all over your body while feeding you drinks to induce vomiting, or you come to this spa where you'll walk through the forest and bathe in hot springs and get massaged and fed. Hmm, that's a toughie. As you'd expect, the doctors of the 19th century weren't pleased with losing territory to bathhouses, and they fought back. Austrian physicians sued Presnitz, the Lancet wrote a scathing evaluation of Claridge, etc. And while they may have been motivated by jealousy, all these guys had some pretty good points to make. There was no data to support hydropathy. None of these sanitariums were keeping records of their successes and failures. Pretznitz presented the picture of himself as dutifully studying and modifying his therapies, but against what? It sure looked like he was making it up as he went. And maybe the most crucial criticism of hydropathy came in the form of a question. Just how is it supposed to work? What was the method of action? What was the theoretical underpinning of this whole thing? Water is healthy? Well, that's not very scientific. But Presnitz came up with a theory, and it was, for the time, a pretty good one. For Presnitz, it wasn't the specific water or minerals that were important. It was largely about temperature. He'd wrap his patients in hot, wet bandages and then cover them in warm blankets. After they were suitably overheated, he'd then quickly remove all that and toss them into a cold bath. The rapid change from hot to cold, Presnitz said, would force excess humors and foreign elements from the body, straight out the pores. Humoral medicine was pretty dominant at the time, which, if we can get really cynical for a second, meant that doctors looking to discredit hydropathy had a pretty fine needle to thread if they didn't want to discredit themselves along with it. For the time, hydropathy was safe. The suits against Presnitz failed, and Claridge continued happily on, unfazed by his medical journal ribbings. But, Humoral medicine wasn't as solid a bedrock to build a foundation on as it may have seemed. By the late 1850s, modern medicine was beginning to emerge. Rudolf Virchow laid out the laws of cell biology, which pretty much put an end to humorism in 1855. And if humors were wrong, then bathhouses were back in the doghouses. By then, Pretznitz was dead and unable to lead the refugee treatment to a new home. So, for the next few decades, sanitariums bounced from hypothesis to hypothesis. In 1867, Moritz Traub made some major developments in osmosis, and hydrology jumped on that. Well, maybe the skin was permeable, and bathing drew out toxins via osmosis? Pretznitz had always maintained that his therapy had nothing to do with the particular water. It was the submersion, or the moisture, or most of all the temperature that did the work. But Pretznitz was gone, and so lots of ideas about specifically, especially curative waters, mineral waters, hot springs, high saline salt waters like the Red Sea, started taking credit. None of these ideas were especially persuasive, but there had to be something, some reason, that these sanitariums were so good. As if on cue, along came J.J. Thompson. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You might remember Thompson from our last episode. He was the guy who discovered electrons back in 1897. He won the Nobel Prize in 1906 and went on from there to make even more remarkable accomplishments, including finding the first non-radioactive isotope. Back in 1903, Thompson was working with measuring radioactivity when he managed to find radioactive gas, radon, in a most unexpected place. Well water. Thompson, I should be clear, was exactly right. There are small amounts of radium in most groundwater sources, and they give off radon gas into the water. That was all Thompson knew or claimed to know. But his message wasn't received with that neutrality. Soon after he published in Nature, people went out to confirm his results, testing various groundwater sources for radioactivity. And they succeeded. Yep, Thompson was right. Water was radioactive. Well, some water. And... Not all the radioactive water was equally so. Some waters showed much higher rates than others. And some of the most radioactive water of all came from, say it with me, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Oh, sorry, no, I hadn't really given you the tools to follow along with that, had I? Okay, well, now you know, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Go ahead and scrub backwards 15 seconds and try it again. much better second time around. Thank you for doing that. Not you, Brian. You think I can't tell, Brian? You think I don't have that data available to me? Come on, come on. Brian, go back. Go back and say it. We're all waiting on you, Brian. That's better. Of all the miracle waters, Hot Springs, Arkansas's were the most (laughs) miraculous. The American government recognized them as special from nearly the moment they took possession. Hot Springs was named the first federal reservation in 1832, before the national park system was a twinkle in John Muir's eye. The Army-Navy General Hospital was centered there in the 1880s, where soldiers and sailors, weary from deployments, were brought to soak in the scalding hot baths. Why were the waters of Hot Springs, Alabama so therapeutic? After 1903, the answer was plain to see. Radiation. It made perfect sense. Not only did many of the world's most popular spring waters show elevated radon, but people also already knew that radiation had medical properties. They knew, for instance, that radiation could be used to treat cancers. And they knew... No, that was pretty much it. But that was enough! Soon, radiation wasn't just seen as the most important part of sanitarium baths, it came to be understood as the most important part of water. Period. Again, This made a certain kind of sense. For centuries, we knew that air was vital, but it wasn't until the late 18th century that we realized it wasn't so much air we needed as a part of the air, oxygen. Maybe radiation was to water what oxygen was to air. Water is life? No. Radiation is life. Water is just the vessel. This sounds like a fringe opinion. But it wasn't. It was widespread. The Surgeon General of the United States, George Torney, wrote in support of it, as did Bertram Boltwood, professor of radiochemistry at Yale. Boltwood discovered radiometric dating. He figured out that decaying uranium eventually became lead and used that decay rate to establish the age of various rocks. But he also wrote that radioactivity was, quote, 
carrying electrical energy into the depths of the body, and they're subjecting the juices, protoplasm, and nuclei of the cells to an immediate bombardment by explosions of electrical atoms, and that it stimulated cell activity, arousing all secretory and excretory organs, causing the system to throw off waste products, and that it was an agent for the destruction of bacteria. Experimental evidence seemed to back up this rhetoric. A German physiologist reported that vitamin-starved rats could be brought back from the brink by exposure to radium. The physician William Osler, in his search for a metaphor for humankind, wondered, may not man be the radium of the universe? For us, he is a very potent creature, full of interest, the spark whose mundane story we are only beginning to unravel. Now, finally, the hydrotherapists and sanitariums had their explanation, backed up by some of the top medical and scientific minds on the planet. With that, their popularity exploded. Great Grecian palaces were built in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Castle Hot Springs, Arizona, Wacomstall, Bohemia, and around the world. But for those who couldn't make the journey to whatever spa was nearest, there was an alternative. Now they could buy bottles of radioactive spring water from their local pharmacist. We're going to do a couple of rounds of a game I call Good News, Bad News, starting now. The good news is the amount of radon in the spring waters was very small and had a half-life of less than four days, so nobody who was buying it was at any risk of actually receiving any radiation at all. The bad news is... They figured that out. If people really wanted radiation in their water, they'd have to be clever about it. They did, and they were. Enter Ralph and Charlotte Thomas. Ralph was working as a stockbroker in Arizona when he came up with the Revigator. This handy-dandy doodad looked like a big clay water cooler complete with a small spigot near the bottom from which you could pour the contents into a glass or pot or pitcher or whatever you wanted to put water in. But this isn't the origin story of Hinckley and Schmidt. The freaky twist of Thomas's cistern was that the clay was baked in a high-temperature kiln for days with large quantities of radium. In his advertising materials, Thomas claimed that he had been an invalid when he first devised the Revigator, and that after drinking from the first one for several weeks, he was up and Adam cured. He and Charlotte moved to San Francisco and set up a small Revigator factory there. Soon, orders were coming in for 5000 a month. Good news, bad news. Round two. The good news. In 1924, Three years after they went into business selling revigators, Ralph and Charlotte were way over their heads, far beyond their manufacturing capacity, and they finally gave up on the revigator business. The bad news, they sold it to a much larger company, Dow Harriman Pump and Machinery Company. Oh, and it's time for a bonus round. The good news. Within a year or two, the Dow Harriman Pump and Machinery Company went out of business. The bad news, because the revigator business was so good, they no longer saw a reason to make pumps or machinery anymore. 
Somewhere between 1925 and 26, they became Radium or Revigator Company and moved into the new seven-story Revigator building in downtown San Francisco. It's still there, at the corner of Sutter and Taylor. From this building, thousands of radium-laced water coolers made their ways to homes and businesses around America every month. The Revigator was billed as a perpetual health spring in the home and came with instructions to fill it every night so that the water inside would get a good 8 or 10 hours worth of contact with the radioactive jar. The instructions also suggested owners drink six or more glasses a day. The Revigator was first to market, but it wasn't alone for long. The Thomas's radium cistern design was aped for a whole field of knockoffs. The Vitalizer, the Emanator, the Radonite jar, the Radium Spa, the Curie jar. If you were looking for a way to make radioactive water on the go, there were plenty of options for that, too. There were radium cones and discs and bars for dropping into your glass. There were mini radium jars, small radium pumps you could push water through like a French press, and tiny suitcase-looking dealies you could store your drinks in out on the road. There were radium potions, radium drops, radium bottles, radium tablets, and radium mints. It got weirder than that. In Germany and Bohemia, you could buy radium bread baked with radium water. Burke and Braun's radium chocolate chocolate bar was sold all around the world. One of the largest parts of the radium therapy business became various bags, pads, comforters, and pillows. One particularly popular radioactive pad, invented by M.L. Degnan, sold more than 150,000 units. Degnan also patented and sold his radioactive eye applicator, metallic glasses coated with radium, which were to be worn for 10 minutes twice a day for the treatment of nearsightedness, farsightedness, astigmatism, or eye strain. Not freaked out enough yet? Because we can get freakier. Dr. Alfred Curie, no relation to Marie and Pierre, but that didn't stop him from putting his name in very large print on everything he made, created a number of disturbing radioactive products. His Tho-Radia facial powder, beauty cream, makeups, lipsticks, and soaps were loaded with thorium and radium. As the Tho-Radia marketing sensitively put it, science has created Tho-Radia in order to beautify women. It is for them to benefit from it. Whoever wants can stay ugly. Dr. Carey, again, no relation, was also one of many competitors in the radioactive toothpaste business. One of his competitors, Doramod, made the case plainly. Radioactive radiation increases the defenses of teeth and gums. The cells are loaded with new life energy. It gently polishes the dental enamel so it turns white and shiny. Can be applied sparingly. Well... At least it can be applied sparingly. I could go on with this all day. There was caradium, a radioactive hair tonic for the prevention of gray hairs. There were radium-laced cigarette cases that promised to make smoking healthier. Radium suppositories for weak, discouraged men. And even... Okay. We're going to talk real quick about this one, and then we're going to move on. For treating impotence, a Soviet company created bougies thin radioactive wax rods that were inserted straight into the urethra. Where were the regulators to stop this madness? Short answer, there weren't any. None with any actual teeth, at least. But 
We've got one more round of this episode's favorite game show. Good news, bad news. The good news is that the American Medical Association finally stepped in to apply standards to radium therapies. The bad news is that the standards they applied were to make sure that said therapies possessed more radium. See, among the hundreds of radium products out there, there was a wide range of efficacy. Lots of scammers were selling fake radium merchandise, including J. Bernard King, maker of a very popular quilted pad that he said gave off radiation to rid the body of germs. In 1929, he was successfully prosecuted by the feds for fraud when they proved the pads were filled with regular old dirt that wasn't radioactive at all. What a jerk! With new standards pushing weaker goods out of the market, the radium products of the late 1920s got more and more potent. And that's where things finally came to a head. Ray Thor was the creation of William John Bailey, a Boston businessman who, in 1921, saw Marie Curie give a lecture about the marvels of radioactivity. In 1922, he started several new companies around the greater New York area, each producing different radioactive products. In 1925, one of those companies, Bailey Radium Laboratories, introduced Radithor certified radioactive water. Each half-ounce bottle was triple distilled and guaranteed to contain at least one microcurie of radium-226 and, hell, another of radium-228 for good measure. Bailey Radium Laboratories promised $1,000 to anyone who could prove it wasn't brimming with the good stuff. They also offered a one-sixth rebate to physicians for each prescription written. Radithor was a huge success. Not only did it sell by the thousands, but the literature about it was effusive, which I'm sure owed nothing to the payola doctors were pocketing. In his 1926 book, Modern Rejuvenation Methods, Dr. Charles Evans Morris wrote, Radithor has so far exceeded any previous method of radium water treatment that has been adopted in hospitals and clinics throughout the world. It gives the greatest possible efficiency in alpha rays at the minimum expense, and thus for the first time since the discovery of radioactivity, it brings the blessings of radium water treatment of a highly scientific kind well within the reach of everyone. A child could take this product for years without the slightest injury. Five years later, Evan Byers proved Morris to be grossly, terribly incorrect. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you're struggling with any of life's many challenges, BetterHelp is available anytime, anywhere to give you a hand. They'll connect you with a professional counselor in a safe, private, online environment where you can get help on your own time, at your own pace, and through whatever means work best for you. Text, chat, phone, or video. BetterHelp has counselors that focus on any number of common issues, including depression, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, sleep problems, and relationship troubles. Your sessions are secure, convenient, professional, and best of all, affordable. Constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant. 
Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Evan Byers wasn't a scientist or a doctor or even a snake oil salesman. By the basic biographical facts, he should be the least important figure in this whole episode. Instead, he's arguably the most vital. Born in Pittsburgh in 1880, Eben was the son of Alexander Byers, founder of the Girard Iron Company. While Eben did eventually step into his father's shoes to head the family business, it was never really his claim to fame. He was primarily known as a socialite, a ladies' man, and a champion golfer. All three of those titles were endangered in 1927, when Byers took a party train to the annual Harvard-Yale football match to root for his beloved Yale Bulldogs. The good news... Oh, sorry. Let's try that again. The good news is that Yale won 14-zip. The bad news is that on the drunken celebratory train ride home, Byers fell out of his berth and hurt his arm. Months went by and the arm wouldn't heal. It kept him from his golf game and, some said, from cavorting with girls. His two favorite things. Seeking relief... Byers went from doctor to doctor, but none of them could help, until finally he landed in the offices of Dr. Charles C. Moyer, a physiotherapist who prescribed Byers that sweet, sweet Radithor. Wow, he did it work. Byers said that his arm felt better almost as soon as he started his Radithor regimen. Not only that, but he boasted that it made him more virile, returning him to his youthful sexual prowess. Eben Byers was soon one of Radithor's loudest and most zealous advocates. He sent cases of the stuff to his friends, and at least one to a lady friend, Mary Hill. He fed Radithor to his horses, and he drank it himself. Three bottles a day for more than two years. Then, in 1930, things began to turn. First, it was the pain in his jaw. Then the headaches began. Soon he had sinusitis, and his teeth began to abscess. Mary Hill wasn't feeling too hot either. She died, suddenly and mysteriously, that fall. Byers' doctors were stumped. He was doing everything right. What could be the issue? He was sent to have his jaw x-rayed. What the radiologist saw reminded him of a very different case from a few years back. A medical case, and a legal one. In 1922, Grace Fryer of Orange, New Jersey, went to the dentist with a curious condition. 
her teeth had started to loosen and fall out of her mouth. The dentist took an x-ray and saw that she had little holes all over her jaw. And she wasn't alone. Lots of women in Orange were suffering from similar mysterious problems, and four had already died. And each and every last one of them had one thing in common. They'd all worked at the watch factory. Back up a few more years, and we find ourselves in World War I, the first conflict to turn in a major way towards the new science of radioactivity. Marie Curie, for example, had spent much of the war developing mobile X-ray machines for frontline French soldiers. But another, more trivial war use for the new frontier was watches. In the dark and in the trenches, soldiers couldn't tell time. But if they struck a match or a lamp, they risked being spotted by the enemy. So how could you coordinate plans or mark the minutes without getting shot for it? Radiation provided the solution. In 1914, Dr. Sabin Sachaki invented Undark, a paint that glowed in the dark by virtue of, say it with me, Brian, radium. Grace Fryer, along with the rest of the afflicted women, had been employed by the U.S. Radium Corporation as dial painters. For a couple of cents an hour, they would apply Undark to the watch faces via a fine camel hair brush. But after a watch or two, that brush would begin to lose its perfect tip. No matter, said U.S. Radium. Just put it in your mouth and bring it back to a point. Undark was perfectly safe, after all. U.S. Radium Corporation is probably the closest thing we've ever had on this show to a pure villain. They hired doctors on the sly to tell their employees that they were fine. They bought off other physicians, bribing them to diagnose the dial painters with syphilis. Years before Grace went to the dentist, they'd brought in a Harvard physiologist to assay the working conditions at the plant. His report had been scathing and had warned of possible health risks. U.S. Radium scrubbed all that out and rewrote the report without telling the author. In 1925, that writer, Dr. Cecil Drinker, heard murmurs about growing medical problems in Orange and found out about the false report written under his name. He went public. With that, Grace Fryer decided to sue the U.S. Radium Corporation. After two years of the company scaring off potential attorneys, one finally took Fryer's case and brought in four other claimants, too. They became known as the Radium Girls. U.S. Radium's mustache-twirling legal strategy was to delay the hearing and delay the hearing and delay the hearing again in the hopes that Grace and the other Radium girls would die off before they could get to court. And that strategy nearly worked, except that in 1928, Von Sachaki, the inventor of Undark, died of radium poisoning. For all the attempts to discredit and obscure them, they now had something closely resembling proof that it was radium that was responsible for their illnesses. The judge's 14-month delay was rescinded, and in May of 1928, the radium girls finally got their day in court. They couldn't exactly celebrate, though. By the time they got to trial, none of them were well enough to raise their own hands to swear their testimony. Nevertheless, they gave their peace while U.S. radium kept inventing new and outrageous ways to postpone and delay. Finally, Grace Fryer and her cohorts gave in. They knew that if they continued the suit, U.S. Radium would be able to kick the can until they were all dead. So they settled. 
In exchange for $10,000 each and full payment of their medical and legal fees, they agreed to drop the suit and sign a statement saying U.S. Radium was not responsible for their very quickly approaching deaths. The official statement of U.S. Radium, in light of the settlement, read, in part, We unfortunately gave work to a great many people who were physically unfit to procure employment in other lines of industry. Cripples and persons similarly incapacitated were engaged. What was then considered an act of kindness on our part has since been turned against us. What a bunch of fuckstraps. But I'm going to take a minute to defend U.S. Radium. I need a drink already. It is absolutely 100% clear that they knew they were on the losing side of the case and that they did everything they could to forestall a verdict. It's equally as clear that they were concerned about the science. Their many attempts to discredit and bribe and dissemble make that obvious. It's also obvious that the higher-ups at U.S. Radium were concerned about their own safety in ways that they didn't share with their employees. They never handled the paint themselves. They used masks and lead shielding and other safety measures in their offices. Yet, what did they think they were protecting themselves from? By 1935, all of the radium girls were dead. But from what? Nobody really understood that. Was radium infectious? No. Was it poisonous? 500 years ago, Paracelsus remarked, the dose makes the poison. That statement is the cornerstone of toxicology, but it doesn't hold up for radium. Grace Fryer had worked at the watch factory during World War I and then died 20 years later. What kind of a poison could do that? Was it laying in wait all that time? A decades-delayed-release toxin? Well, yeah. Pretty much. There were two things that people didn't know about in the 1920s. They didn't know what radioactivity could do to a body, and they didn't know what radium, in particular, did when it got in one. The body doesn't recognize radium as radium. To the body, radium looks like calcium. So when it's ingested, the body says... Oh, hi there, calcium. Why don't you go make some bones and teeth? But not only does radium not make for very good bones, it's also, obviously, radioactive. So the radium in the bones damages and kills and breaks down all the cells around it. That was the lesson we might have learned from the radium girls. But they were poor and up against a large duplicitous corporation. So instead we had to learn it from a well-to-do playboy and golfer. We had to learn it from Eben Byers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Byers' radiologist looked at his jaw x-rays and said, Oh, this reminds me of Grace Fryer. So he contacted Dr. Frederick Flynn, who had been one of the doctors to examine Grace and the other radium girls. Yes, he concluded, just like Fryer, 
Byers was dying from radium poisoning. Dr. Charles C. Moyer, Byers' go-to physician who had prescribed him the radithor in the first place, told him not to worry. Flynn was wrong. There were no laws or regulatory standards on the book that could control the sale of the poison, except for a law from 1907 that said that you couldn't make false claims on your packaging. Radithor promised it was chock full of radium, and that was distressingly true. So nothing to be done there. Except, Radithor also said it was perfectly safe. That was debatable. In 1930, the Federal Trade Commission opened an investigation into Radithor, and they asked Eben Byers to come give testimony. Byers responded that he was too ill to travel. So the FTC sent a representative to take his deposition from home. On September 15, 1930, FTC attorney Robert Wynn knocked on the door of the buyer's resplendent Southampton estate. In the April edition of Time magazine, Wynn said that a more gruesome experience in a more gorgeous setting would be hard to imagine than what he found behind that door. Like Grace Fryer before him, almost all of Eben Byer's teeth had fallen apart. So had his upper and lower jaw which had to be removed. His brain was so swollen with tumors that they cracked open his skull, which he had to wrap with oozing bandages to keep from falling apart. All the bones in all of his body were softening into a radioactive soup. His painful testimony and Wynn's reporting put an end to Radithor, and with that, an end to radium therapy. The young FDA was empowered to set safety standards and shut down violators, and the public's perception of radiation was forever changed. It's impossible to say how many died as a result of the radiation mania. The only saving grace for those who turned to radioactive toothpastes and face creams and water jugs and jock straps is that so many of these devices and products were frauds. Still, others were not. The Radium Girls did not die in vain. Their case and the publicity around it helped lead to greater workplace safety laws, class action lawsuits, and labor rights. The other deaths we do know are mainly of the scientists who studied and worked with X-rays, radium, polonium, and uranium in those early days. And those martyrs to science number in the hundreds. Clarence Daly, assistant to Thomas Edison. Elizabeth Fleischmann Ashim, called America's Joan of Arc. Louis Andrew Weigel, William Carl Engelhoff, Wolfram Conrad Fuchs, and Rome Vernon Wagner. Walter J. Dodd of MIT, whose work with x-rays led to such suffering and pain that before his death, there were the 50 skin grafts, and before the skin grafts was the cocaine solution in which he had to soak his hands to sleep at night. And most importantly, Marie Curie. The discoverer of radium and polonium, coiner of the word radiation, Nobel laureate twice over and in two disciplines. Between her chemistry research and her work X-raying soldiers in the war, Marie Curie was exposed to terrible amounts of radioactivity and in 1934, developed a plastic anemia. 
She died that same year and became the first woman to be entombed at Paris's Pantheon, the resting place of France's greatest citizens. Evan Byers died shortly after the FTC investigation, on March 31, 1932. He was interred in Pittsburgh's Allegheny Cemetery. His remains are so radioactive that they had to be buried in a lead coffin. Music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rose Bear, and Kevin McLeod. I've got a couple of live appearances coming up for those in the Chicago area. On Saturday, July 13th, I'll be at Shuba's for 20 by 2. And the next day, Sunday the 14th, I'll be at the Sleeping Village for the Paper Machete's Big Blowout Show. I'll leave links for both of those in the show notes and at our website, www.constantpodcast.com, where you can also go to find old episodes, our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram presences, and our Patreon, where you can become a supporter of the show. For folks who can't make that Paper Machete show on the 14th, I'll be posting the audio to the Patreon secret feed afterwards, along with all the other little stories and knickknacks that go there. There are so many more stories to tell about early radiation, but we can get back to those somewhere down the line, because next show, we're celebrating a very special, constant holiday. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home of the Radium Dial Company, where a second group of young women were sickened by radioactive paint, even while the first were dying in court, this has been The Constant.